Imagine you're a police officer working out your shift in a rural little town in southeastern Oklahoma. You get a call about a woman claiming her daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter are missing. It's pretty standard, you think, and this will be a good way to finish out your shift. You'll take the report, swing by the donut shop on your way to the station, then eat your frosted donut with your cup of coffee while entering everything into the computer. Easy peasy, right? But then you pull up to the property of the purported missing person, and a frantic woman meets you, pacing around hollering as soon as you get out of your car. You hear something about a cult, and you take in your initial surroundings. You see a storage shed with all kinds of weird graffiti on the sides. You focus your attention on the woman and tell her to calm down. You wince, and like your partner always says, telling someone to calm down never works. You start by asking the woman, who is missing? My daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter, she shrieks at you. You ask her for their names and write them down. Bobby, Sherilyn, and Madison Jameson. You ask how old they are, and she says that Sherilyn is 40, Bobby is 44, and Madison is 6. You ask when the last time you saw them, and she says she doesn't know, because they're pretty quiet and they keep to themselves. You glance at the graffiti and wonder if that's true. You ask her if she knows of anyone who might want to hurt them. She yells, A cult! You ask her to clarify, but she says, There's a cult out there, and they took them. You start to realize that the donut shop may be closed by the time you get done with this. Resigned to your fate, you call into dispatch asking for some additional units, as a missing kid is important and want to start looking at this property. In the coming hours, days, weeks, and years that this case will come to grip the area, you will often think back to this time, right before you got this call, and how peaceful things would be. Soon, you'll be tangled up in the story of drugs, cults, white supremacists, witches, mental health issues, all as you try to uncover what happened to the Jameson family of Eufaula, Oklahoma. And we're going to do the same, friends. We're diving into the twisted story involving the disappearance and unfortunate death of Bobby Jameson, his wife Sherilyn, and their six-year-old daughter Madison, today on Bearded Things. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bearded Things. My name is Tyler and I am your bearded host. Happy Tuesday for those of you who are listening to this when it first comes out. If not, then happy day or night or whenever it is when you happen to be listening to it. I hope this episode finds you all happy and healthy wherever you may be. I myself am a very happy camper right now because at the time of this recording, my great and beloved 49ers are now a cool 3-0 after some amazing victories of late. I definitely love seeing the 49ers beat the Rams at Levi Stadium South, a.k.a. SoFi Stadium down in L.A. It's always fun to see the 49ers go down there and just the sea of red and them just kick butt in terms of, you know, playing the Rams and everything. And I only am saying this because I know we have a small contingent of Rams fans that I like to throw it out there and, you know, just kind of rub it in your face. So thank you. And uh, now that my gloating is out of the way i did want to say a huge thank you sorry i just knocked down some stuff you guys heard that on there i want to say a huge thank you to all of you who have listened and have given feedback in the last couple episodes and just feedback in general and have been super supportive um since coming back i am 
deeply touched and just, you know, so thankful for all of you who have come back after like the long hiatus. And I just want you to know that I appreciate it very, very much. I also owe you all a massive apology. I am so sorry for the sound quality in that last episode. Thankfully, hopefully some of you who did not catch it early didn't notice anything. And those of you that did catch it early, and I have some emails that I will read here in a moment where you did catch it. I apologize for that. I don't really know what happened. <laughs> um, it sounded fine during editing and everything was good. And then I guess when it compressed and uploaded to the host, something got all botched and it was all screwy and I know the sound was all messed up. I think I have it identified and I have corrected the issue. So hopefully this is sounding much better and I won't have to re-record this entire thing over again because this is going to be a long episode. Now, before we get into the story and get into, you know, everything, I did want to do a couple quick updates right off the top. Um, first, again, I want to thank all of you who sent in messages of like just general recovery and like well wishes about, you know, my stupid health issues that I have going on. It means a lot to know that so many of you really care. I think I responded to everyone, but if I didn't get back to you immediately, or even if I didn't at all, please know it wasn't personal. Uh, I try to read and get everything out. I don't get a ton of emails, but I try to respond to all the ones that we do get, but sometimes I do get distracted. So I do apologize for that. And a last personal update, uh, since you guys have heard from me, I have been let go from my job at CVS, so your boy is currently broken jobless. <laughs> um, I'm hoping to have my procedure done pretty soon, and then I can jump back and get a job and, you know, get back in the swing of things. So that's about it for me. Um, it is time to get into some updates that you wonderful people have submitted uh, via email. Starting first with a quick email from a bearded friend named Todd. And the subject line is sound quality. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know where this one's going. Todd says, bro, please fix the sound issues. You go from screaming into my ears to whispering and it drives me nuts. For the love of bearded, Je <laughs> For the love of bearded Jesus, please fix this. Yours truly, Todd. Um, Todd, thank you. I Like I, I mentioned, you know, I know the episode is pretty shitty quality-wise. And I am very sorry. And again, I hope this episode is sounding better. And I don't you know, won't have to do too much editing. So, uh, another email comes in and I think it's from an anonymous listener. The email is anonymized and the name is given, I think is a joke, but I don't know. We'll see. The subject line is sir. It says, sir, sir. First of all, I think your microphone is broken. Yes, I know. Please fix. Second, all second, sec oh, second of all, you cannot be sorry. Second of all, you cannot be saying things like you did in the beginning of the episode. You know what I'm talking about. Please do not do it again, or my boyfriend will get upset at me for, for listening to the episode with the door locked. <laughs> Cheers, your good little listener, Inga from Sweden. Well, Inga, uh, even though like, I think it's a joke name. Um, I apologize for the sound quality again. And for the second part, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's just how I always talk. Although I do appreciate all my good little listeners out there. Okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's that, that's creepy. Um, okay, now quick, thank you for those two emails that were submitted. Um, I appreciate that. And so a couple quick housekeeping items. Um, again, I can't really thank you guys all so much for the support that you've given in the last episode. But I do have a favor to ask of you. For the show to really become more successful and start spreading around the globe again. I need you wonderful bearded friends to please show the podcast some love on whatever various platforms it's on. 
So I'm going to ask if you could give the show a rating, which would hopefully be five stars. Um, because that's really the best way for any podcast to grow is just through like the rating system. And the more ratings you get, the more it grows. And it starts becoming, you know, popping up on like suggest- suggested pages and stuff like that. And then after you rate it, if you could please also just tell any and all of your friends that, you know, that, you know, this podcast is amazing and you want to share the bearded knowledge that you're getting. Um, I really appreciate that. And if you were truly a bearded friend, you would do it right. Because if you don't, then that just means you don't love me, right? And if you don't love me, why are we here? Okay, I'm kidding. Finally, there is a new link at the bottom of the episode description. I think it went up on the last one, but I didn't mention it because all the editing and all that stuff that went down. Um, It's a support this podcast link, I believe. And when you click on it, it asks you if you want to become a supporter of the podcast. And I know you guys are already amazing supporters already, and I appreciate you all so much. But this asks, this is like a monetary support type thing. I think it's like 99 cents, like 499, 99, something like it's like one, five, 10 bucks. Now, I don't want you to use this link. You don't have to use this link at all. And I promise you, I like your support, your love, your messages. It's 100% enough. Plus that five-star rating that I know you're going to give us later on is going to be super supportive and it's going to be great. Wink, wink. However, if you do choose to support the podcast with your hard-earned money, I promise you two things. One, half the money when I get to a certain amount, we'll go to supporting the podcast by buying like better equipment. I want to get like a quality soundboard and some other stuff so I can mix sounds in instead of having to do it in post editing after the fact, which is a pain in the butt. And second of all, when I do purchase those upgrades, like I said, when we get to that point, the other half of money will be donated to charity. And I promise you it won't be the like, uh, you know, Tyler doesn't have a job charity and stuff like that. Like it'll definitely be a you know, worthwhile charity, either local charity or national charity, whatever. Um, I'm a pretty big, you know, firm believer in paying it forward. And also not to kind of preach, but also as a Muslim man, one of the pillars in Islam is giving and supporting the community. So that's something that would also be helpful, you know, to the community, helpful to myself. But again, this is 1000% optional and I do not want you to feel like you have to. I'm just throwing it out there that if you choose to do so, you'd be doing some good. All right, so I think that does it for updates, and now it's time to move on and get into our bearded background. Now, again, we're covering the Jameson family disappearances, and before I begin, I want to warn you that this episode's probably going to be the longest episode of the podcast, definitely the longest in a while. It's a pretty wild story, and I kept getting sucked down these crazy rabbit holes, and it's been a while. It's been a lot. It was a lot of research, and I do want to give a shout out and thank those amazing people who've kept me sane in the last week or so while I've been doing this. While I was sending, you know, sending all kinds of random, weird pictures about like pronunciation keys and random shit at 3 a.m. I appreciate all of you for helping me keep me sane. And now to contradict that previous statement, I also want to start out by saying there's not a lot of information regarding the early lives of the Jameson family. The family's pretty rightfully so, have been pretty private about the disappearance of the family and have only given a few interviews. But what we do know about the parents, I'm going to get into. Bobby Dale Jameson was born to Bob Dean and Starlet Jameson on August 4th, 1965 in Eufaula, Oklahoma. Like I mentioned, little is known about his family and his life growing up, but we do know that Bobby's dad was an army veteran and after leaving the army, owned and operated several businesses in the area of Eufaula and Oklahoma City including some tree farms and multiple service stations. And for anyone who is unaware, a service station is the same thing as a gas station, 
but with some extras such as like oil changes, basic car repair, stuff like that. And I want you to keep this in mind for later on in the episode. As someone who grew up being raised by a grandfather and father who were both military veterans, I can imagine life was pretty strict for young Bobby. Also growing up in a pretty small town in rural Oklahoma, I can also imagine Bobby was pretty involved in his father's businesses. This is all conjecture on my part, of course, and I don't want to speculate any further, but I just wanted to give you kind of an idea of what was possible life like for Bobby growing up. Also, on a side note, I really do think his name was Bobby and not nicknamed for Robert. Everything I've seen says he was born Bobby. Just thought I would throw that out there in case you were thinking I didn't give his full legal name. Now, Bobby's future wife, Sheridan Leanne, was born to Connie Kadokan on November 5th, 1968 in Ufala, Oklahoma. There's even less known about her life than there was about Bobby's. I tried for a long time just to find information on Sherilyn's father, but the man kind of seems to have vanished or the family just never talked about it because I couldn't find even like genealogy records or any sort of like death records on the man. So there's even less about her upbringing and her early life than there was about Bobby. But all we know that is she was raised in the town of Eufaula. And speaking of Eufaula, let's get a little background on this tiny little town, shall we? Eufaula is the county seat of McIntosh County and is named after the Eufaula tribe of indigenous peoples. The Eufaula people are part of the larger Muscogee Creek Confederacy, which represent a large number of indigenous peoples within the woodlands of southeastern United States, which you know ranges from Oklahoma all the way down to Florida. Member nations of the Muscogee Confederacy were forced from the land during the infamous Trail of Tears when Congress and then President Andrew Jackson forcibly removed hundreds of thousands of indigenous peoples via the Indian Removal Act of 1830. So the Muscogee, who were the first of the so-called five civilized tribe, of which also included the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, and the Seminole peoples, were moved from their ancestral homes in Florida and Georgia to Oklahoma. Many of the Muscogee, then called the Creek, settled in what is now Eufaula. Interestingly, way before the Eufaula arrived, the area of McIntosh County, where present-day Eufaula sits, were home to indigenous peoples whose dwellings date back to the archaic period of North America. There are archaeological sites dating back as far as 6000 BCE. Now, back to the Eufaula settling the area, By the 1830s, the Creek established the area of Eufaula and made it the center of the Creek territory. This meant that all businesses and ceremonial powwows were held in Eufaula. Which, on a side note, I use the term as a noun and not a cheeky way to discuss like a meeting. Like A powwow is a sacred conference of people, and I'm aware a lot of non-indigenous people have kind of stolen that word, and it gets like mixed up. There's a lot of cultural appropriation. So I just want to know, like, I'm not trying to be cheeky about that, and I'm actually trying to use it as the noun. Anyway, so in 1870, Eufaula was prospering, and then the chief of the creek, G.W. Grayson, his brother Samuel, along with other creek leaders, were able to convince the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railway, got to be a better way to say that, to build a station near the settlement. In 1872, the railway built the station, and soon many European-Americans were moving to the area. That same year, the settlement was named after U.S. Indian agent George W. Ingall. Because, of course, you know, why name an area after the people that were living there? Name it after, it's like some white dude that showed up and decided to claim it for himself. However, this Ingall wasn't actually a terrible person and suggested the area be named after the specific tribe of people living there, the Eufaula. Unfortunately, this was 1800s America, and it would take another 20 years or so before in in 1898 that the town of Eufaula would officially be incorporated as a town in the Indian Territory of Oklahoma. Also, by the way, 
I'm not trying to be flippant or purposely use the term Indian here, but rather use it as an official term in regards to the, like, quote, Indian territories and Indian agents of the time. I know there's still a lot of debate, you know, to this day about indigenous peoples on how they want to be referred to, like, as a whole, whether it's the First Nation, Native, American Indians, indigenous, you know, the, there's a lot of different names. And I'm going with indigenous peoples just because I have several friends that I know who are, you know, indigenous peoples. They live on reservations. And that's what they tell me they prefer. So if I am offending you by saying indigenous instead of American Indians or native, I apologize. Anyway, the town of Eufaula was incorporated in 1898, back when Oklahoma first became a state. And Eufaula was folded into the new McIntosh County. But in 1907, an election was held in the neighboring town of Chekataw was named the county seat. Eufaula residents refused to accept the results of an election, sound familiar, due to them being the oldest and largest town in the area. When Chekata officials arrived and demanded the historical records, the people of Eufaula refused. A year later, on June 7, 1908, men from Chekata, led by a man named Frank Jones, arrived by train in Eufaula, guns drawn to take the records. Two Eufaula deputy marshals named Kelser and F.M. Woods would get into a verbal confrontation with Jones. Now, before I get into it, I have to say I kind of love, like, these old-timey names. Like, you have Frank Jones, which is just this super standard, like, boring name, and then a man who just goes by the name Kelser. Like, is it his first name? I kind of hope not. Is it his last name? Probably. But still, like, <laughs> could you imagine them, like, introducing themselves? It's like, hi, I'm Frank Jones, and you are? And Kelser just, like, leans against a pole or something and, like, Suddenly he has a hat on for some reason, because that's what you do. He's like looking down, smoking a cigarette. He blows the smoke out as he looks up, so it's kind of hard to see his face. And it's like this real grizzly voice just says, the name's Kelser. Then after like a few moments of awkward silence, Jones just like looks around and is like, that's it? Like, what kind of self-respecting man goes by one name? And like Kelser would like smirk or something and be like, Kelser does. Because you know someone who goes by Kelser has to refer to themselves in third person, right? Oh... <laughs> And then you have this, like, red, you know, like, F.M. Jones, or F.M. Woods, excuse me, who probably has, like, I would think, to explain his name a lot. Uh, like, Frank Jones will look over and dealing with Kelser, and he's like, what's your name, Todd? And Woods would be like, of course not, my name's F.M. Jones. And then he'd be like, what's the F.M. stand for? And he's like, I don't know, it's easier on the ears than A.M. Woods. And that's a radio joke, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I have no idea what F.M. stands for. I don't know if Kelser had a first name, or if Kelser was his first name. Uh, and I'm probably got too far in this random tangent in my head. So, um, I'm going to go, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to move on. Um, but the reason I bring this up is because these men fought in something that was known as the battle of Eufaula. Now, according to telephone operator, W.R. Willington, but of course, why would he have letters to her first name? He claimed to have seen the fighting, told the newspaper, the Chronicles, original name, quote, suddenly there, things began to happen. The MK&T train from Muskogee and Chekata was late and arrived in Eufaula about noon. A group of men from Chekata got off the train, stiff with guns, and they began scattering out over the town of Eufaula, preparatory to taking it over. I'm reading his statement. I'm not actually like... These aren't my words. Part of them went north, circling around the courthouse for the purpose of taking the county records and carrying them to Chekata. The rest of them went to different parts of the town, some of them came up Foley Avenue between the telephone buildings and the old Tully building, shooting as they came. Some of the bullets hitting the telephone building, the intersection of Main Street and Foley Avenue adjacent to the telephone building was, quote, inside his quote, a no man's land. And also the central point of the battlefield, 
I sought security behind the telephone switchboard, and I did not come out until the shooting had subsided. The Chuckatow group was not successful in securing possession of the county records. Eufaula became the county seat of McIntosh County. Things quieted down, and I survived this wild and woolly event in the history of the old Indian, Indian Territory of Oklahoma. Now, after the shooting, two men were dead and another was wounded. Two men were arrested for murder, but neither were convicted because it was the Wild West, apparently, and you could just go around killing people. A year later, Eufaula would become the county seat for good after a special election. By the 1920s, Eufaula was growing strong and, you know, pretty regularly with a population of 2,286 people. And by its height in 1980, had a a population of 3,159. As of the 2020 census, the population of Eufaula is down to 2,852 people, which consists of 71% white, 17% indigenous or American Indian, 7.5% 7.5% mixed race, 1.8% black or African American, and 0.46% Asian American people. The median age of the city is 50.7 years old, and the median household income is $46,068. Of the population, 60% of the surveyed were members of the U.S. military at some point in their lives, majority being from the Vietnam era. There is an unfortunately high poverty rate of 28.7%, and it's a fairly blue-collar town with about a quarter of the population working in the hospitality industry and another 20% or so working in the construction industry. Their primary exports are coal, gravel, and petroleum products. And the only reason I give you this whole long background is because I want to give you an idea of the area that Bobby and Sherilyn grew up in. Now, speaking of, according to the family and the few interviews that they've been given, Bobby and Sherilyn met in the summer of 2002 when Bobby was 37 and Sherilyn was 34. Seems kind of strange to me considering how, like, small the town was, considering around that time there's only 2,600 people or so. And I also know if you're hearing this and you think, like, that's still a lot of people. I think my high school had around that many people in it when I graduated, so that's a very small town in where I'm from. If you're in a part of the country or in the other part of the world where 2,600 people in your town is a lot, I don't tell you. <laughs> um, to me, it feels like a town that small, everyone knows everyone, and so for them to not have met seems strange. I don't know if they did know each other, but they like knew of one another or I don't know how, what their relationship was before that. And plus I know Sherilyn was also most likely in a relationship for at least part of that time prior to them getting to know each other because she did have a son who was seven when they met. Anyway, the couple meet in the summer of 2002, like I mentioned, and like most new couples, they wasted little time to get busy. Within a year of the meeting, their daughter Madison Stormy Star Jameson would be born on August 1st, 2003. Yes, that's her real name. (laughs) A few months later, in November of 2003, Bobby would allegedly be involved in a major car accident that resulted in him having severe back injuries, which forced him to take painkillers for the rest of his life. He also went on disability at this time and would not work again prior to the disappearance. Sherilyn was also reported to be still on disability after the birth of Madison, and would also not work again prior to her disappearance. Take note of this information as it will become relevant later. Despite all that, the couple decided to get married in July of 2004. Even though the couple was struggling financially, things seemed to be okay on the home front for a couple years. Then sometime between 2004 and 2007, Sherilyn was reportedly diagnosed with bipolar depression, but would also neglect to take her medications often. Due to this, things started to get rough at home according to family members. 2007 started off on a rough note as Sherilyn's sister was killed in a freak accident after being stung by a bee. 
This kind of spun Sherilyn into an even deeper depression and was allegedly hospitalized after a suicide attempt. Things were also reportedly rough for Bobby. While suffering from his own debilitating back pain, he was also unable to work, but attempted to work some odd jobs for his father, but they rarely panned out. I also kind of want to mention here that there's a couple articles on the web where there are stories stating that Bobby was involved in a custody battle with his ex-wife over his two older children, but everything I've seen, nothing ever mentions that he had like a previous marriage, and doesn't say anything about having him having other kids. Sherilyn had an older son, which I'll get into in a little bit, but as far as I could tell in all my research, there's no mention of Bobby alleged like other children. The two articles I did see, they kind of, they said the same thing, and they were kind of like one was the source for the other, I think. So it just doesn't make sense. While I'm on the topic, by the way, I'd like you to just take a minute, sit right there, while I'll tell you how I became the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Sorry, can't help it. But seriously, I want to tell you guys how hard it is sometimes to research these topics. Like, if it's a big one, there's lots of news coverage, like, lots of interviews. Like, I want to do Manson at some point, or, like, Bundy. There's tons of information out there, right? It's pretty easy. But, like, for this one, it's been kind of rough. Like, so many people just throw shit out there in this, like, timeline, and it makes no sense. Like, half the articles I read or videos that I started watching say they got married in 2004 and they had Madison later that year or in 2005, but they failed to do, like, the math and say that if she was six when she went missing, baby born in 2004 or 2005 couldn't be six in 2009. Like, it makes no sense. And, like, Bobby having older children or even, like, how old Bobby and Sherilyn were when they first disappeared, it, like, none of it makes sense. And it drives me crazy. So I just wanted to vent and rest assured I did my best. <laughs> I went to like genealogy records. I found death dates. I found all these things that like to make sure I had the most accurate information possible for you guys. Because it is frustrating and it's annoying to see people just kind of make shit up. Especially when everything you read on the internet is like supposed to be true, you know? Um, so I'm going to have to seriously start questioning what I see online. And I can't blindly trust what the internet tells me. Or, you know, the person that's yelling the loudest saying, trust me. I think that trust is gone. You know, it's been ruined by the internet. Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> kind of went off the rails there. I'm a little delirious. I apologize if this, me- if this episode is all over the place. I promise I will focus in here very soon. So Bobby doesn't have any other kids that I know of. He most likely did not have any children other than Madison. And we do know that he was struggling to make ends meet. Later that same year, things got worse for Bobby when his parents got divorced. Details of the divorce aren't really well known, but we do know that Bobby and his dad, Bob, rarely spoke after the divorce. Another thing about the stupid internet that drives me nuts is there's so many things online where it says Bobby Jr. and Bobby Sr., but neither of them, like, there wasn't, he wasn't a Bobby Jr., he wasn't a Bobby Sr. Bobby's middle name was Dale, went by Bobby. Bob, Bobby's dad, went by Bob, and middle name was Dean, which I know is super confusing. There's a lot of names, and I'm very sorry about that, but it, it, it drives me nuts. And if they both went by Bobby... I imagine there would still be a difference as, you know, Bobby Dale or Bobby Dean. Um, And yes, I do think it's super weird to name your kid Bobby if your name is Bob. I never really saw the need to name a child after a parent because it seems like some strange, like, insecurity or, like, trying to force your kid to be, like, a carbon copy of you. It's putting a lot of pressure. So I apologize if you're a junior or a senior. Like, please don't come after me. I just know that, like, it just, to me, it's always strange. And Bob Dean totally seemed like the type of person who would want, like, a copy of himself. But he was also not one of those people who like seemed like one of those people that thought no one could live up to like his image or her brilliant. So he wanted to name someone close to him, but didn't want to like think anyone could do it. So he named Bobby. I don't know. But whatever. I'm sorry. I'm getting off the track here. I need to focus. 
<laughs> so Bobby and his dad have a falling out. But it gets real bad in 2008 when Bob and Bobby have a disagreement over profits from the service stations that Bobby was helping his dad with. So this is, remember when I was like, oh, there'll be information later, like, it's coming back. The disagreement got so bad that Bob allegedly threatened to kill Bobby and his family in November of 2008 if Bobby wouldn't leave it alone. Then again, in April of 2009, six months before he and his family would disappear, Bobby files for a restraining order claiming in the filing that his dad was, quote, a very dangerous person who thinks he's above the law. Bobby also claims that his dad was heavily involved in, again, quoting, prostitutes, gangs, and meth. Keep this information in the back of your noggin because we're going to be discussing theories at the end of this episode. So getting back to the family, despite them both being on disability and not having a lot of disposable income, according to family and friends, the family lived beyond their means. According to Sherilyn's best friend, a woman by the name of Nikki Chenold, which she will play prominently in this episode, so remember that name. The couple claim to also have like vacation homes, like timeshares in Mexico and other parts of the U.S. This could just be a couple having delusions of grandeur and like trying to put out more than they have, so I don't put too much stock in it. I don't say none, but not a lot. One thing I do put a lot of stock in is that they, the Jamesons, Sherilyn and Bobby, believed in the paranormal. They were also very religious, and Sherilyn in particular was very into witchcraft. Apparently, Bobby and Sherilyn had spent considerable time speaking to a local pastor, a man named Gary Brandon, about what to do about their home being invaded by dark spirits and how to go about getting an exorcism. They allegedly told the pastor that Madison had an imaginary friend named Emily, and Sherilyn believed that Emily was a malevolent entity. Sherilyn also reportedly told her friends that she would sometimes see Emily and that Emily, quote, had wings like an angel. I will say, little kids and their imaginary friends are pretty creepy, but they do have them fairly often. Um, my son Roland had an imaginary friend for a while when he was a kid. He would say that his son, or said it was his son or like his kid. And every time he talked about seeing him, like it always gave me the heebie-jeebies. Like it's just a weird thing when kids talk about that. Um, those of you who are friends with me on social media, actually, which is at the Hamburglar, this past week I posted on about a Facebook memory about where Roland and I were at Pan Express in the mall and he said his son was like standing next to us and like a, a leaf was moving and stuff. It was really weird. It was creepy. So I 100% believe that Madison had an imaginary friend. Whether or not they saw it with angel wings and all that stuff is to be determined. Anyway, Bobby and Sherilyn believe that Madison's imaginary friend Emily is causing them harm or at least causing her harm, but there are no details anywhere regarding what they thought that harm was. They did, however, feel that the potential harm for Emily and the spirits was so bad, again, according to friends, that Bobby had asked the pastor for, quote, special bullets so that he could shoot the spirits he felt lived on the roof of the family's home. Bobby was also planning on trying an at-home exorcism using a copy of the Satanic Bible, which he had recently purchased. The Satanic Bible, for those of you who are unaware, is a collected work of Anton LaVey containing several rituals, observations, and essays and is the main religious text in Levian Satanism and the Church of Satan. I won't go into too much detail around Satanism in general, but Levian Satanism is an atheistic religion founded by Anton LaVey. The main reason I want to bring this up is because, thanks to the internet, a lot of people believe that Bobby and Sherilyn were devil worshippers, and somehow their disappearance is less significant due to this fact. Setting aside the fact that it shouldn't matter who you worship, Members of the Church of Satan do not worship the devil because of atheistic religion, like I said. 
and anything atheist means that they don't believe or worship any sort of godlike figure. There are some theistic Satanists who do subscribe to like worshiping the devil or worshiping a god in the Satanic Bible, but I won't get into all that. Sorry for the tangent, but it does bother me when people try to throw others under the bus for believing something different than they do. Anyway, Bobby was trying to do an exorcism with a satanic Bible, which I don't even know if you can do it, but that's what he was trying to do. Sherilyn, not to be outdone, buys a copy of the Witch's Bible. And this one, I have no idea which Witch's Bible it was. Um, there's a lot of them online, but according to her best friend, again, Nikki, Sherilyn was heavily into witchcraft and considered herself a full-fledged witch. Nikki and Sherilyn were known to perform seances with Nikki claiming that she was never really into it, but Sherilyn took them very seriously. According to Nikki, Sherilyn believed that the evil spirit of Madison's imaginary friend Emily was the spirit of a dead child with whom they made contact with during one seance. Sherilyn at one point also believed that her neighbors were poisoning her cats, so she scrawled graffiti on some storage bins around the property that faced the neighbors. One bin said, quote, Three cats killed to date in this area, followed by the letters SSB number three. She added, like, above this sentence, the words by people, but by was spelled B-U-Y. She also added, quote, witches don't like their, T-H-E-R-E, black cats being killed, with killed being in red spray paint. Another storage container had the words, quote, only God can judge. Gossip is a sin. And we know who you, may God bless your soul. At least that's what they look like to me. Um, it's kind of hard to make up. I will post the pictures so you guys can see on Instagram and you can kind of get an idea of what they are. Many friends also said that the house was supposedly very haunted, or at least would agree with Bobby and Sherilyn when they said it was. Nikki told reporters, quote, But in all seriousness, that house was haunted. I don't want to sound crazy, but whenever I went there, I felt a horrible presence. I would leave feeling so down and depressed. Many friends state that this feeling was almost palpable for Sherilyn in particular. The couple years leading up to their disappearance, she was reportedly so down and depressed that everyone was worried about her. Things at home seemed to be spiraling as well. Bobby and Sherilyn began to fight more and more. Friends and family said that the fighting got so bad that the couple had started to discuss the idea of getting a divorce despite, quote, still very much loving each other. Now, you guys remember when I, went, I mentioned that Bobby had to get a restraining order on his dad in April of 2009, right? Well, the family gets another sad blow in July of 2009. That's when Sherilyn's ex-husband takes her to court in order to gain full custody of the then 12-year-old son, Colton. During the hearing, Colton would tell the judge that he preferred to go live with his dad because his mom was, quote, very depressed and acted strangely. In September of 2009, Sherilyn is hospitalized after a suicide attempt once again, and things are spiraling at a faster rate. Around this time, the couple begins to think about moving to a smaller town because Eufaula, and it's less than 3,000 people, was just too big for them. They also start looking for extra ways to make cash since this was 2009 and OnlyFans wasn't a thing yet. One of those ways would be to sell custom inspirational quotes spray-painted on the sides of containers or walls for the neighbors. Sherilyn wanted to spread her message to all that would accept it, and the best way for her was with her spray cans. Fortunately for her, her erratic behavior kind of made the neighbors nervous, so they would pay her for small jobs in order to keep her happy. She began with certain passages out of the Bible that she felt served as a sort of, quote, protection spell for the property. Her most used was 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, But the Lord is faithful, 
and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Unfortunately for the neighbors, when Sherilyn wanted to do more work and they refused, she would still go and spray paint passages. Her go-to in this case was from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 20 to 22. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with such disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. Holy shit. More on this later. Another way they were able to make a little bit of money was to bring on a boarder, like uh, in a handyman, to help live with them. He paid rent and helped around the house because Bobby wasn't able to do much because of his messed up back. However, soon after he moves in, Sherilyn allegedly learns that she has some indigenous blood in her and begins searching for more information about her native roots. Which, if this is true, kudos to her. I think it's amazing that she wanted to learn more about her heritage, even if it's just like a small part of her makeup, you know. Unfortunately, according to best friend Nikki again, Sherilyn says that soon after finding this out, the border, a man named Kenneth Bellows, got upset with the new information regarding her heritage. Sherilyn told Nikki that whenever Bobby would leave the house, Kenneth would begin acting strangely. On one such occasion, he sat down on the couch next to Sherilyn, got in her face before telling her that he was a white supremacist and was disgusted with her, quote, Indian blood. Obviously, this made Sherilyn pretty scared. She got up, ran to another room, and she grabbed a gun. She returned to Kenneth and allegedly told him, quote, get off the property and never come back. When Kenneth refused to leave, she shot several rounds at his feet and eventually got him moving. More on this guy later as well. Oh, by the way, it's later. I was totally kidding about the Bible verses and all that stuff as being a side hustle. Um, I just had to, this is a very intense episode, so I had to do something that was fun. So ignore all the stuff about the verses in the storage shed. Hopefully I fooled somebody. So now Kenneth is gone, the family decides it's time to start looking at other places to live. But before that, surprise, more drama. A few weeks prior to the disappearance, Bobby and Sherilyn removed Madison from school and were allegedly threatening legal action against the school due to an incident that happened. What the incident is, we'll never know because it never got brought up to family and friends. There's no records of it from school or any sort of legal officials who know about it. And Madison will be homeschooled up until her disappearance. In early October of 2009, the family begins meeting with a realtor to discuss leaving Eufaula and moving to the tiny town of Red Oak in the nearby San Bois Mountains. By the way, I scoured YouTube and the internet for a long time on how to pronounce these freaking mountains. And of course, the internet can't get their shit together. A video I watched said San Boys Mountain, but all the pronunciation guides say San Bois Mountains. Now, being the cunning linguist that I am, I think the Latin pronunciation is obviously more French-inspired. And although there aren't many French names in southeastern Oklahoma, I did stumble upon some information that stated the Creek settlers of the area were influenced by French explorers. So, I did some more digging outside of pronunciation guides. I found out that the Creek were amazed by how little trees were growing in the mountains. And guess what the translation of Sambois means in French? Go on, guess. It means without wood! Boom! You're welcome, America. So I'm going with the French pronunciation, and I'm apologizing to any Oklahomans that are listening to this, and if you are mad at me, you pronounced a different different way. If it is San Boys Mountain, please let me know. I'm just going off of what I can based on what is on the internet. Okay. You see the shit I had to deal with, and probably the poor people that I put through at 3 a.m. 
This is the stuff I'm talking about. I was going down rabbit holes. I was losing my mind. Anyway, so the family is looking at land out in the San Boa Mountains and find a realtor who identifies roughly 40 acres of land for them. Bobby and Sherilyn were probably thrilled and began to make arrangements to see the land. And now is when the real big mystery starts. To th- we're getting into the meat and potatoes here now. We're never going to know for sure what happens on October 8th of 2009, but we have some clues. There's surveillance footage of Bobby and Sherilyn packing up their truck throughout a good portion of the morning. I will go into more details in a bit regarding theories behind the disappearance, but many people point to this footage as a sign that something weird was going on. I've seen the footage, at least what they make available to the public, and you can too if you just like YouTube type in like the Jameson family surveillance. It's a very choppy, grainy camera footage that you would expect from 2009. This is well before like any kind of 4K ring cameras and all that other shit that we have that's standard for everyone. So Bobby and Sherilyn pack up their truck, and we know from interviews done with the realtor that they were planning on heading up to Red Oak, which is up in the San Juan Mountains, which is about 30 miles from their home in Eufaula. What is strange is that according to the realtor, who from all I can tell has been asked to remain anonymous because there's no information on who this realtor is, but they stated that when Bobby contacted her about selling the property, he requested that she not come along. The realtor stated that she had multiple properties in the area and was up there often to show people around because it was such a, quote, low traffic area. It was also very, it was prone to having lots of people going missing. Despite knowing this, Bobby doubled down on not having her tattled along and only requested the GPS coordinates from the realtor. He then takes the coordinates, gets in the truck all packed up, and is never seen again. The realtor is the last person we know of to speak to any of the Jamesons while they were still alive. I also want to point out that there are some conflicting reports online on when the Jamesons officially went missing. Again, thanks to lots of different stories and not having a lot of information and the family not being very forthcoming, some speculate that they were reported missing on the 8th, Others say that that's the day they went missing because the surveillance footage is from the 8th. Some claim that they thought the family was on a trip, so they didn't get reported until, you know, the 11th or the 12th. Uh, It's very confusing depending on which version you read. So if you've heard that they were reported missing on the 8th a few days later, just know it's okay to be confused. In my opinion, after seeing and hearing the interviews done with Connie, Sherilyn's mom, I believe they probably left on the 8th. And she reported them missing on like the 9th or as soon as she didn't really hear back from them after that day because Madison was with them. She seemed to be most concerned about Madison and really wanted to know about Madison from the get-go, which I don't blame her. Also, for you guys' information, and contrary to most TV shows about missing persons, there is no mandatory 24-hour waiting period to report a missing person. I know that may have been the case maybe like a while ago in the past, but I've scoured, I've gone on, you know, state records, I've look through as many resources as I can, like state laws, federal laws, anything to say that you have to wait. And all I've seen, all I've been able to come up with is in certain circumstances, like when someone has a history of running away and returning or tend to go radio silent for long periods of time, then some departments will ask you to wait. But regardless, if a child or elderly person is suspected of going missing, most police departments want to know ASAP so they can issue an amber or a silver alert. So if you take anything from this episode, Please don't wait to report a missing person if you suspect them of actually being missing. Also, I apologize for any international listeners, as this rule applies to, you know, pretty much the U.S. I have no idea how it works in other countries, but also knowing that a lot of countries are ahead of the times in comparison to most U.S. stuff, I'm pretty sure you guys have a better system than us anyway. Regardless, don't wait to report a missing person. Okay, back to October and off my high horse. 
Whether they leave on the 8th or they're reported on the 8th, that was the last time anyone knew exactly where they were. Family and friends tried to contact them, and when they failed to show up after the weekend, everyone really starts to get more worried. A massive search begins after the police join the friends and family looking for the missing family. It's pretty crazy because one of the interviews that Sherilyn's mom would give, she says that when she filed the missing persons report, whether it was the 8th or the 9th, in her heart, she says she knew that they had been killed. I also want to point out that the video from this interview is fairly well done, but you can definitely kind of see they chopped up a lot of her statements to kind of make it fit a certain story. And it really bothered me for some reason. Like, it was well done, but it was just, it seemed very propaganda-ish. And I didn't like that. But anyway... So the search goes on for a week. There's no clues. Investigators are worried because the temperature is starting to get down into the 40s at night. And so they're fearing that like if they went camping or something, they could be experiencing some mild hypothermia. Like if they were in a river, they got wet. Um, the realtor who was also involved in the property contacted the authorities, gave them the same GPS coordinates that she had given Bobby. And when investigators got there, they found evidence that perhaps the family had visited at some point. There were some abandoned trucks in the area that had been smashed and like the words... Jesus Christ will save you and God bless were scrawled across, you know, in different parts of the truck in the same black spray paint. During the investigation that followed, it was determined that the spray paint matched the same done by Sherilyn at the storage containers in her house. So it was kind of interesting that like they may have visited the property prior to October, but I don't know how they knew about it prior to October. It's very strange. Then October 17th, 2009, investigators are tipped off about a clue. A pretty massive one, in fact. The truck. Again, reports vary on whether it's the 16th or the 17th of when the truck was found. I'm going with the 17th because that's the most, the more trusted sources, i.e. police documentation, that I found. But regardless of the day, the truck is found in the rural area of the mountains. I will post a picture of the truck. And by the way, this may be the first episode where I end up doing like a two-part post on Instagram because there's so many photos that go with the story. It's it's crazy. So authorities are tipped off by local hunters about a truck, and when they arrive and find what is inside the truck, this missing person's case takes a very strange turn. First of all, the truck is locked, which makes sense, but not when you realize the contents of the truck. Inside, the truck is filthy, but they find clothes, coats mainly, a GPS device, which is a pretty standard thing to take on a trip, both a couple cell phones, Kind of weird to leave in a truck. Some maps, good to have on a trip. Bobby's wallet and Sherilyn's purse. Weird that they would leave the truck without them, but whatever. And $32,000 in cash, which is super weird to have in my opinion. Oh, and next to said pile of cash, there was an 11-page letter from Sherilyn to Bobby that was, quote, very hostile towards Bobby. We'll get into this in a, in a minute. I guess I should also add that inside the car, they found a fucking dog. That's right, the family dog Maisie was found inside the locked car and was somehow still alive despite being, quote, extremely malnourished and suspected of not eating for several days. The dog, for those of you wondering, was given to Bobby's mom and is supposedly doing well. Well, maybe they're dead now, but it's 15 years ago. But now I love animals, dogs especially, and I can't think of any reasons that I would leave my dog in a locked car for any amount of time. Um, unless there was like someone in the car. So it's very strange that the dog was inside. The police were able to use the cell phones to kind of like reverse engineer the movement prior to like where the phones were before they were left in the truck. Uh, and according to the GPS coordinates on the phones, the couple walked up to a nearby hill. When police arrived at the hill, they found small footprints that they believed to be Madison's. According to the police, 
It's believed that the family spent about 15 minutes up on the hill before returning to the truck. Now, the only way I can think of this was determined was that, like, there was some kind of intermittent ping to the cell phone, which allowed them to track the time on the GPS. Otherwise, I, I have no idea how the hell they would know that they were up there for 15 minutes. So if any of you out there are smart enough to know why, like, please let me know. Another piece of evidence related to the cell phones is the last photo on the phone, which is one of Madison. I'll post the photo as well. And I will, like, let me tell you, like, this is, there's something weird to this picture. There's speculation that the picture may have not been taken by either Bobby or Sherilyn, or that they weren't even around due to the look on Madison's face. I don't know if I buy necessarily that whole theory because, I mean, she's six. And I feel like if, you know, anyone who's spent time around a six-year-old, they're not exactly like the master of their emotions. So if her parents were gone or some stranger was like taking a picture of her while her parents were like scared, I imagine she would be like crying and more upset. That being said, the photo does look kind of disturbing. You know, there's a very strange expression on her face. Her arms are crossed in a weird, like kind of unnatural way. It doesn't really look comfortable, but I'm also not a six-year-old, so who knows? The look on her face can kind of be explained away. Like, you know, if you take a picture and it's just like the wrong time. Like I have a ton of pictures of Roland on my phone where he's making like a funny face. Or I take a picture before he smiles or just after he smiles. And it just doesn't look the same. But I I also don't know, like, you know, when I take those pictures of Roland, like I usually take another one. So I have like a smiling picture or whatever. And this is the only photo of the sort. And no other information was really given about any other photos on the phone. That was just the only one that they said. It was also strange that when they pulled phone records, they said there was an outgoing call made on the 12th, which was five days prior to the truck being found from Bobby's phone. I've looked far and wide and tried to find who the call was made to, what the call was made about, but it's only being listed as they had an outgoing call. Seems weird to me. Initially, the Latimer County Sheriff at the time, which is where the truck was found, Sheriff Israel Bisham, which by the way, I just, like during this research, I found out that I've been pronouncing the name wrong forever. His last name is spelled B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P. So I've always pronounced it as Bochamp because that's kind of what it looks like. But apparently it's Beecham. Anyway, Sheriff Beecham initially thought that the truck had been stolen and the Jamesons had been carjacked. But local hunters, probably the same ones who tipped him off in the first place, called in to tell authorities that the truck had been abandoned there for almost a week. So this theory was quickly dismissed. Sheriff Beecham, who was ridiculously jacked, by the way, like if you watch these videos, like this dude is ripped. Um, I mean, he's, he's 100% like doing all the curls in the gym, like nothing else. Um, to his credit, he pulls out all the stops in order to find the family. According to his interviews, he enlisted the help of over a thousand volunteers and over 300 law enforcement officials from Latimer County Sheriff's Office, the Latimer County Commissioner's Office, the Oklahoma Forestry Service, the Oklahoma Highway Patrol, the FBI, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, over a dozen local fire departments, tribal agencies, and lots of search and rescue teams. He also enlisted the services of several HRD, which are human remains detecting, aka cadaver dogs. He got ATVs, horses, mule-mounted volunteers, and all these people to navigate the terrain. When the terrain was not accessible by foot or hoof, they utilized aerial drones, fixed-wing, and rotary aircraft with heat-detecting imaging software. So give this man his credit, he wasn't fucking around. And according to local authorities, it was the largest search and rescue effort in Oklahoma to date. They would comb the area for weeks, but turn up zero additional clues. As more and more time went by, the hope of finding the family alive grew slimmer and slimmer. While the searching continued, investigators turned to the evidence they did have, 
and tried to piece together what happened to the family. They conducted thousands of interviews with family, friends, neighbors, enemies, and basically anyone that could give them any sort of information. During the interviews, one thing kept coming up regarding Bobby and Sherilyn. Drugs. Sheriff Beecham was quickly was Sheriff Beecham was quick to point out that when they talked about drugs, he didn't always mean like the hard stuff. Bobby was on valid prescription painkillers and was reportedly taking them as prescribed and not abusing them. Sherilyn was on prescription meds for her depression and bipolar disorder, but unfortunately she was known to skip doses. But there are rumors of some hard drug use as well. The area of Eufaula and the mountains that they were looking at buying land from are known hotspots for rampant methamphetamine use. Some investigators point out to how thin Bobby and Sherilyn were prior to their disappearance as evidence of this drug use. The reports of them being in a, quote, trance-like state during the surveillance footage as well points to drug use in this line of thinking. I'll go over this a bit, in, in a little bit, I promise. The family and friends deny any drug use, but according to information gathered by the police, both were frequent users, and one deputy went as far as to say that they both used, quote, every single day, definitely. Aside from drug use, both legal and allegedly illegal, the reports that things weren't hunky-dory at home also surfaced with that 11-page letter to Bobby written by Sherilyn. I tried to find the actual letter, but was really unable to because I think it's still part of evidence and the case is still technically open, but there are excerpts read in interviews. In the excerpt, Sherilyn writes that Bobby is a hermit and not good at taking care of his family. She adds, quote, You are a very toxic person. You need to find happiness. You contaminate everything you're around. It breaks my heart. She goes on to say, quote, you're a terrible person to be around. Sorry, don't mean to laugh, but it's just, that's very brutal. And most disturbing in my opinion, quote, I would not wish our daughter to be raised in foster care for you being in prison for attempted murder and her mother dead. So, I mean, you read that and you have to think like she hated this man and thought he was trying to kill her. But there's also notes found at the home that were very loving. One of them said, quote, Bobby Jameson, a genius, a man with special gifts, a loving and tender soul, which she signed that with, quote, with all my love and soul, always and forever, Sherilyn, happy chic. I don't get the signature, but maybe it's an inside joke with him. Both Sherilyn's best friend, Nikki, and mother Connie vehemently deny any discourse in the family and say that Sherilyn would often journal and write about her feelings on paper, but never intended them as any sort of indication on what was happening. In regards to Sherilyn, in terms of like this also sort of line of thinking, it is worth noting that she had a 22 caliber pistol registered in her name and they was not found in the truck or the house. So they believe she had it with her. In the early days of the investigation, there were also witnesses who lived in and around the area where the truck was found who claimed to have seen tire tracks leading from the truck and going further up the mountain. This led investigators to believe that perhaps the family had met someone who was going to show them the property despite what the realtor said about the Jamesons not wanting assistance. Others thought that maybe they were not given the choice to get into another car and were taken by force, which would explain why all their belongings were left inside the truck. However, police quickly determined that there was no sign of struggle around the car, and Sherilyn's mom said that she doesn't believe either Sherilyn or Bobby would willingly leave all their belongings in the car, but also would not have gone out without a fight. This led investigators to even more theories that perhaps they knew the person who arrived and thus got out of the car willingly, or perhaps Madison somehow got out, the person used Madison as a way to get the parents to cooperate. Again, I will get into list of suspects and theories in just a bit. During the search of the area, the cadaver dogs alerted several times to a nearby water tower, which led the team to eventually drain the tower. However, there was nothing inside the tower or anywhere around it. 
Because all the credible clues seemed to be coming up dry, officials began looking at all possibilities. They investigated the vacation and the timeshare properties that the family allegedly had. They followed up on Sherilyn's mom, who believed that they were abducted by a cult that lived in the mountains, but nothing was credible. Eventually, the case would remain officially open, but the search changed from a rescue effort to a salvage effort, which indicates the team is no longer believing the party being looked for are alive. This obviously pissed off the family and friends, but it makes sense when the months would drag on the area search widened every day. Thanks to the modern age, TV, and the internet, however, it really spawned this kind of host of amateur detectives who tried to solve the case. In 2010, the case was featured at the Investigation Discovery series Disappeared, and this really kind of kicked off this massive amateur hunt. Surprisingly, the prevailing theory around this time was that the Jamesons joined the Witness Protection Program. The reasoning, which these are all true, by the way, are that the money was found in the car was given to Bobby's mom after the disappearance. Uh, The changes to Madison's appearance Her hair was dyed blonde right before the disappearance, and the missing person's photo were originally only using the last photo from this phone. Amateur detectives would say that the clothing in this picture is also very tight, where Madison would normally wear very, like, flowy dresses. There was also supposedly no reward money offered, despite Bobby's mom having the $32,000. Finally, during this time, the FBI did not list the Jamesons as missing persons on their official website dedicated to missing people. It all seems pretty compelling to me, honestly, And I should also point out there were many conspiracy theories regarding a police cover-up based on the couple of taped stories done by Sheriff Beecham and his successor, who both proclaimed that the Jamesons were drug addicts and may have been on a binge, they got lost in the woods. Um, I'll go into further details on these theories uh, because some of them are pretty outlandish, but the thought was basically that they had like left on their own free will and for some reason or other, like they left all their cash, their stuff, and their dog behind to die because they were just out doing whatever. On January 21st, 2013, two adult bodies were found in Lake Eufaula by investigators, and this was the fear of the community as most assumed it was the remains of Bobby and Sherilyn. However, it was not. Remember in the beginning of the story when I told you the long history of Eufaula and you guys probably all fell asleep? Well, I hope you didn't because the remains found at the bottom of the lake were of like two prehistoric indigenous figures. And to me, it's pretty crazy that like, if it wasn't for this exhaustive search, their remains probably never would have been found unless the lake got drained for some reason in the future. And I'm not saying this is good or it's like it's a positive thing because it's really sad that they had to be looking in the first place. But I just think it's kind of crazy that they found the remains of these like two adults that were like thousands of years old. It's nuts. The next month, a new sheriff takes over in Latimer County, a sheriff by the name of Jesse James, which obviously is not the famous outlaw, but it would be kind of ironic if they were related. Sheriff James, aside from not having a hard-to-say last name or being like ridiculously yoked out of his mind, kind of goes away from the casual attitude towards the case and begins putting new investigators on to give it like a fresh perspective towards the case. It's during this time that Nikki, the best friend of Sherilyn, receives a cryptic phone call and reports it to the police. Nikki claims that she received an anonymous phone call from a woman who asked if she was still looking for the Jamesons. When Nikki says yes, the caller told her she was a former member of a local white supremacist group and she, quote, saw a book that had a bunch of names in it. There were names of people that someone in the group had a problem with and needed them taken care of. Remember that border who didn't like Sherilyn talking about her native heritage? Hmm? Hmm? The anonymous caller went on to say that after each meeting, she would peek at the book, then go home and Google the names to warn them. That's when she came across the name of the Jamesons. Apparently, Bobby had a special insignia on his wedding ring, and this is something that not many people knew about, but it was used as an identifying piece within the book. According to the anonymous woman, she, quote, 
overheard some conversations with these guys where clearly they were talking about Sherilyn, Bobby, and Madison, that they took care of them. Supposedly, one of the guys talked about how he liked to put Madison on his lap and how it made him feel good. Gross. This led Nikki to contact the police who went back to the case with new leads. This also leads to the surveillance footage, but I'm going to save that in just a bit and sum it up all at once. Finally, on November 16, 2013, some deer hunters reportedly find bones in the mountains. Investigators go out and confirm that the remains are human skeletal remains of two adults and a child. The remains were found in a very remote area and were only the three skulls, some various kind of assorted bones, the shoes, and some clothing fragments. They were found approximately 2.7 miles, or 4.3 kilometers, away from where the truck was found, in an area referred to as Smokestack Hollow by the locals. It's nuts to me that they were so close to the truck when the search area spanned like dozens of miles across this like wilderness, and they were so close. Um, the spokesperson for the Oklahoma Bureau of Investigation stated the reason for not finding the bodies during the initial search was, quote, falling leaves potentially obscured the bodies. Which I get, you know, I like the time the family went missing was in the middle of fall, being in the mountains, there were probably leaves everywhere, but holy shit, man, like those search and rescue teams and like the thousands of people searching for them, like how do you not feel heartbroken that they were so close to the area you were? It just, I can't imagine. Now, how the remains were positioned is something that is odd and remains a point of interest to this day. All three bodies, and I hope you can kind of hear the air quotes around that one since they're really were just fragments, like, but it's easier to say bodies instead of like fragments or remains, um, were found face down in a row next to one another. The bodies were also very, very badly decomposed after being in the elements and subject to nature for a little over four years. Of note, however, is that there's a very small hole in the skull of one of the adults. This led investigators to believe that perhaps the one with the hole in the head was shot. I would imagine there was a mixed range of emotions went through the minds of family and friends when the announcements were made that the remains were found. Due to the decomposition, however, it would take about eight months to conclusively identify the bodies as the Jamesons. In the report from a medical examiner, the official cause of death for all three were listed as unknown. Dr. Joshua Lanter, Lanter, it's like lantern without the N. Dr. Joseph Lanter wrote, quote, Due to the absence of skin, soft tissue, internal organs, and the remaining skeleton, paramortem trauma and or natural disease cannot be excluded. Very fancy way of saying, like, we don't know. We can't say it was what it was because we don't have enough evidence. Forensic anthropologists also looked at the bones and determined that the hole in the head of what would be determined to be Bobby could very well have been from animal predation. Basically, kind of boils down to the remains being so decomposed that they can't determine the cause of death either way. As for the hole, police went with the forensic anthropologist's view and said it wasn't a bullet. The hunters who found the bodies say that it very well could have been a bullet. We'll never know. Having not seen the hole, I obviously can't pass judgment, but I think, depending on the size and like the shape of the hole, I'm going to trust the opinions of like forensic scientists over hunters. So, sorry hunters. Okay, so with that, we now know that the missing family are missing no more and are tragically dead. And so now the case turns from a missing person's case to a possible murder investigation. Thankfully, there's lots of theories and police had lots of leads. I'll do my best to sum this up as quickly as I can because this is already too long. That's what she said. Hey, I warned you guys at the beginning this was going to be a long episode. I hope you're sticking with me here. So let's start with the murder theories. 
One of the top ones is the, you know, anonymous phone call to Nikki talking about the white supremacists wanting to kill the Jamesons. I think the fact that this anonymous caller had identifying details about Robbie's ring is pretty interesting. And there was, you know, that incident with Kenneth Bellows, the border, who told Sherilyn straight up that he was a white supremacist and didn't like her. Kenneth was brought in for questioning by the police, but he was able to, to produce a verifiable alibi and was dismissed as a suspect very early on. Now, this doesn't mean that another person could have gone and killed them or tracked them down or whatever, but it does eliminate Kenneth. Another suspect in terms of the murdering is Bobby's father, Bob. As you'll remember, Bobby got a restraining order filed against his dad after they had a disagreement over the work done at the service station, as I mentioned earlier. Apparently, the dollar amount of the disagreement was roughly $10,000, which is nothing to sneeze at. There were also reports that I wasn't able to substantiate that claimed that Bobby and his dad had settled the agreement in the amount of $64,000. Apparently, they sold the service station and split the profits, and this is where the $32,000 comes into play. And, you know, Bobby's dad was upset, and he began making claims and threats about how he was going to kill the family to get his $32,000 back. However, everything I looked at, there's nothing that shows, like, this actually happened. Bobby's dad was investigated when they went missing, but according to Bobby's uncle Jack, Bobby's dad was either, quote, in a hospital or rest home on his deathbed, so it was unlikely it was him. And to me, it feels like someone finding or making up, like, kind of confirmation bias to be like, oh yeah, like this is where the money came from and like trying to connect the dots that don't necessarily meet up. Um, and Bobby's dad did have an alibi. He was in the rest home and he died two months after they went missing. So he was eliminated pretty quickly as a suspect and most likely didn't do it. Um, he also left his entire estate and all of his money to Madison in his will. So either he's really good at killing someone when he's dying and left all of his stuff to his granddaughter in his will to like cover it up or it wasn't him. Sherilyn's mom, Connie, believes that they were murdered by a religious cult, like I kind of talked about in the beginning. She believes that Sherilyn was on a quote hit list from a cult that operates out of southeastern Oklahoma, but was unable to come up with a name. She was adamant about her theory though, saying, quote, like I've said from the very beginning, I think somebody killed them. There's just no way that Bobby and Sherilyn would ever let anything happen to Madison unless something had been done to them. Connie also talks about a trip that she took with Sherilyn to Oklahoma City because Sherilyn was acting very strange and she didn't want Sherilyn to be on her own. She said in an interview, quote, She became very dangerous and very illogical. One day she drove me to Oklahoma City and dropped me off on the street. She told me, get out of my car. So I did. So seems like there was something going on there and I can only imagine what it's like to lose a child. So I get her trying to find a reason to, like, what happened. But I don't think the cult thing fits necessarily. Now, the last theory in terms of, like, being murdered by an outsider falls into this vague, like, drug deal gone wrong theory. They did have a shit ton of cash in the car with them. And I guess if you're going to be doing a big drug deal somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, like, that's probably as good of a spot as anyway to do it, right? Many point to the surveillance footage as them acting strangely as evidence of the drug use. But friends and families also state that they never did drugs. So it's, it's this kind of back and forth, like, yeah, they have a ton of money. Where did the money come from? That's very strange. And they were acting strange. So, like, there is evidence of possible drug use. But then everyone says, oh, they didn't use drugs. And, again, I'll get into this very shortly. To me, like, common sense and, like, being a parent, it like, you have to ask the question, like, who's going to bring a six-year-old and a dog and a bunch of other stuff to a drug deal? Like, that doesn't, like, yes, part of it fits, but, like, the overall theme of it doesn't make sense to me. 
The next theory is one of the more popular ones, and that is that it was a murder-suicide. In majority of the telling, people believe that Sherilyn killed Bobby over her unhappiness or possibly because one or both of them were on drugs. The 11-page, quote, hate letter points to a pretty unhappy marriage, but as I stated earlier when talking about the letter, Sherilyn's mom and best friend Nikki both state that they don't believe she would do anything and she used the writings as a way of coping. Nikki would add that she felt the writing was done so that she could she wouldn't get upset and like blow up on Bobby. Which I totally get, however, but like, why do you bring the letter with you? Like of all things you're packing up on like a little trip, like, oops, sorry, honey, like let me run back to the house and grab my manifesto telling you how much I hate you and fear you're gonna kill me. Like, that makes no sense to me. And that's besides the point that in order to do this, she would also have to kill her daughter, you know, like, or leave her daughter to fend for herself. Both I strongly doubt would happen. Throughout all the stories and all the stuff that I've read and seen, like, one thing that is constant about Bobby and Sherilyn is that they both seem like really good parents. Uh, plus, there's a hole in Bobby's skull, which, like, could have been done with the missing twenty-two that Sherilyn had, but then, like, what happened to the weapon? Or she and Madison just, like, lay down and, like, wait to die? You know, like, it, none of it makes sense to me. And finally, the last theory that makes any sort of sense is that they died due to exposure. Like I mentioned, when they first disappeared, the temperatures were down in the 40s around this time of year. So if they were out at night, they got lost. Uh, they could have easily succumbed to the elements if they never got back to the car and didn't get food. Um, they did leave their little, you know, the coats and the ex extra clothes they had in the truck. It, again, begs the question, why would they leave all the stuff in the truck? And I saw on one site where someone said, like, oh, maybe Madison ran out of the truck and they chased her and got lost. And that makes a lot of sense, being a parent. Like, I would probably do the same. But who jumps out of their truck with none of their stuff? Like, sure, I hear you say in my sleep-deprived state, your kid is loose. Like, you're not going to stop and grab your phone and wallet, right? But then you stop and make sure all the doors are locked on the car before you leave? Like, it, again, it doesn't make sense. Sheriff Beecham, who you remember was sheriff at the time of the disappearance, stated that, quote, a lot of investigators would love to have as many leads as we do. Problem is, they point in so many different directions. And I think that's what's so bizarre about this case. There's so much evidence, and there's so many things that go on, but nothing, like, links with itself. Like, they're all, like, nothing comes to a solid conclusion. And before I get into my final thoughts, I do want to, again, touch on the promised surveillance footage. <laughs> in almost every article you read, it talks about how they were acting strange, acting erratic, and they just weren't their usual selves. And, like I mentioned earlier... The little bit of footage we see is a very small clip of them walking back and forth to the truck from the house. Detectives and other law enforcement members who have seen the footage, like the whole footage, have stated that the two look like they were in a, quote, trance. There would be long periods of them standing around doing nothing and sometimes just staring off into the distance. In total, roughly 20 trips were taken to the truck from the house with them carrying items and sometimes with nothing at all. Also at this point, there is allegedly a brown suitcase that Sherilyn brings into the truck, but it is not there when the truck is searched later on. Even stranger is at times they change clothing while going back and forth. Many in the police community suggest that this, coupled with their significantly thinner frames, points to drug use. And again, it's very strange, and our bestie Nikki thinks that it may not just be the two of them, and there's one other person that's in the area. In the interview regarding the alleged white supremacist group, she says, quote, There's a third person in that video. Many people are quick to say that's Bobby and he changed his shirt, but it's not Bobby. If you watch the last time you see Bobby in the white t-shirt going to the truck, you don't take your and you don't take your eyes off the driver's side window of the truck, you see it illuminate white as he's gotten in. Then later you see the 
guy in the brown shirt coming to the truck and you still see the little illumination in the driver's side truck. I believe Bobby got into the truck and was still there. Now, we don't have access to the full footage, so I can't tell you definitively, but there are clips that you can see. There is a man in a brown shirt and there's a man in a white shirt and they're not on the same screen together. I think the man in the brown shirt, he does kind of look like the same height and build as Bobby. And I didn't like splice the photos next to each other, but you can look, there's a point where the guy in the brown shirt is standing next to the car and it looks about the same height. Also, there's like a second where the alleged third person comes into frame, but there's no one in the truck. So to me, it's not, there is no frame of them in there together. To me, it's very weird and it's just like super bizarre that they would be changing all their clothes. But I think that is probably what happened. Also, lastly, on the subject of the footage, if you Google Jameson family surveillance or whatever, like a very creepy looking screen grab pops up and it looks like a really clear image. And this is pointed out by a lot of people of like a shot of them in their trans-like state and they go on to move. Problem is that this is a video from an episode of BuzzFeed Unsolved where they're clearly doing like a reenactment, but they fail to tell the viewers that that's what they're doing. So these like idiots on the internet think that the BuzzFeed Unsolved has like some crazy high resolution video of the night in question. But it's not. It's just a reenactment. So if you look it up and you see this like kind of creepy looking photo, that's all it is. It's not the actual footage. So what do I think happened? Well, <laughs> to be honest, I have no clue. When I was first doing all the research for the episode, I thought that they were probably kidnapped or something. Maybe someone was aware that people were looking at properties out in the mountains and they got their rocks off by killing and like kidnapping people. But I feel if someone were into that and they were killing people like that, they would be more victims. Also, the fact that there's no evidence of a struggle or foul play in and around the truck is strange. I think that there would be something to show that they were taken against their will. I thought, again, perhaps the tire tracks that were leading away from the truck and up the hill could have been something, you know, someone who got out, pointed a gun at them, made them all get out, then they drove them off and they killed them. But then why not go back and search the truck? Like, why not go find the stuff in the car? Like, you just randomly going to kill people? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. I do think that if they were killed by like an outside party, I don't believe it was done with guns just due to the lack of evidence around the bodies. And this is purely assumption on my part. Um, I would think that if you're searching this huge area, like investigators, and then the bodies turn up within three miles from the original like truck, that crime scene like team is going to scour the area with like a fine tooth comb. They're going to look for every little bit that they could. So I imagine they have like checked for metal, like anything in and around the bodies just to find some evidence. And I think they would have found bullets with the amount of body that was gone. Any form of killing could have done it. And even if the killer picked up like the shell casings, they probably didn't dig into the bodies for the actual bullet. Right? So I think if they were killed, then probably they had their throats or like some artery cut. Right? I think this also kind of lends a little bit of weight to like the murder suicide option. If like Sherilyn shot Bobby, then killed Madison with a knife before turning on herself. But again, that doesn't make sense because then why, like, how would she line herself up with her, like, with Bobby and her daughter and then kill herself in line so that, like, they're all next to each other, right? I don't know. I also think the last photo of Madison is very strange, but I don't know how it fits into everything. Also, what happened to the alleged brown suitcase thing that the police saw in the surveillance footage, allegedly? Like, there's so many things that still don't make sense. And, you know, I mean, maybe they just... Bobby and Sharon had this crazy like mental breakdown together and they just began wandering the woods. They were trying to find some solace and they got lost and they just dragged poor Madison with them. I don't know. 
so that's just about does it. <laughs> I'm going to quickly wrap up here with our what did we learn segment. Now, first and foremost, I think we learned something we already know, which is mental health is a very scary thing and affects millions across the country. And as we close out September and Mental Health, mental health Awareness Month, I think it's important to remind everyone that we don't always know what's going on in the lives of other people. So let's just try to be kind to one another. Another thing we learned in this is that drugs are bad, okay? Uh, I don't believe for a minute that the Jamesons were clean of all drugs. I have known and still know people who are frequent drug users. And the behavior shift is crazy. Like, it's very palpable. And I'm not saying Bobby or and or Sherilyn were rampant drug addicts. But I think they may have gotten mixed up in something that messed them up and made them act out. This is something that I learned and didn't really share too much because it wasn't really related. But, like, holy shit, like... There is some rampant, blatant, like, and even casual racism going on in the Ufala area. There were some interviews I saw with detectives and even, like, of the super ripped Sheriff Beecham where they say, like, oh, what's a nice white family doing? They wouldn't get mixed up in drug stuff. It was probably the Mexican mafia invading and messing with them. Like, what the fuck? It seemed very underhanded. There was also another page I saw where an investigator talked about the alleged, like, white supremacist group who had that book. But they, he described it as a, quote, men's club who meet and talk about like ideas. Come on. Like, what the fuck? Like, are you kidding me? Not related to the case, which is why I didn't, like, put it in the notes. But it just seemed it seemed crazy to me. And I just I thought I would bring it up here. And finally, we learned that terrible things happen to people all the time, unfortunately. And people go missing all the time. According to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, there are currently 23,663 missing persons as of the time of this episode. There's also been 35,844 cases of missing persons resolved so far this year. So, quick math, over 60,000 missing people at some point in this year. Half of them have been found, thankfully, but still a lot, still missing. Of that missing, right now, roughly 30% of them are children under the age of 18. So if you suspect someone is missing, please, 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 please report them to the local police department as soon as you possibly can. And I think that's going to do it. I apologize for this long episode. I wish I had a happy ending to the story, but coming up on 14 years to the date when they disappeared, what happened to Bobby, Sherilyn, and little Madison is still and probably will be forever unsolved. It's super sad, but it was also a very interesting story and with so many twists and leads. I, I wish they could have done something. They could have found something. They could have found some information, but I think with them being gone for so long, it's crazy. Um, I will say before I close out, it's so interesting looking up a lot of the information on the subject because there's so many websites that were started when they were missing. So there's stuff from like 2010, 2011, 2012, up until 2013 before they go, before the, you know, the, the remains are found, where it's these people who were convinced it's witness protection, that's convinced that it was aliens, and they have all these theories, and it's, it's kind of mind-blowing to see the thought process that people put into. And there was like one, this person had a huge like WordPress website, like a huge blog post where she had all this information compiled and all these things and like would update every time something happened. And it's so sad because there's no update for like when the remains were found. And I can only imagine just like all that hard work she put into it and it was for nothing, you know? So it's just, it's crazy. And you know, it's, it's a testament to what people do you know when when something was missing like you know the people coming together trying to help is is pretty fascinating but it's 
it's also very sad when you see just the state of mind people were in. So, anyway, <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed making it, even though I know I complained a lot and I spent way too much time going down some of those route holes and pronunciation guides and finding statistics. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you wonderful listeners. If you have thoughts or theories as to what happened, please email the show at beardedthingspod at gmail.com. Like I did today, I'll be reading the updates at the start of the show, unless for some reason we start getting a lot of them, then maybe I'll do it at the end to save time. I don't know. We'll see. Um, please also follow the show on Instagram, which is beardedthingspod. You can also find the show on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash beardedthings. And I mentioned at the top, please like, subscribe, rate the show five stars, wherever you can. Uh, it's the best way to get things going and, you know, trying to get the show growing again. So please spread it out to as many people as you can. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell everybody, tell your enemies, tell people you hate. And uh, yeah, thank you all again. I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Have a good day. Bye. The truck is found. I'm dying.